Pamela is the executive director of Pro Love Ministries, and under the Pro Love Ministries umbrella, life affirming projects and organizations collaborate uh, with so many multifaceted efforts to solve life issues. Pro Love Ministries seeks to unify efforts within the pro life movement to create shelter from the storm of chaos, which devalues life in all stages. Pamela, um, could you start by telling us a little bit about Pro-Love Ministries and your role with them? We started Pro-Love Ministries officially in 2019, and the hope was to begin to unify the pro-life movement, to combine forces, so to speak, so that we could come up under one message and one purpose and one goal. One thing that we've recognized for many years is that the pro-abortion movement is pretty solid and unified in their messaging. Everyone knows their talking points. And our hope was that uh, those of us who were meeting the needs of women who were previously unheard, unseen, and underserved would be able to do the same. We also want to fill gaps in the pro-life movement. So we recognize some areas of service that were missing. And that's where a lot of our affiliates come in. Those are already established 501c3 organizations or organizations that we helped establish who are uh, meeting needs that were previously unmet, for, for example, and then there were none. You know, there was no ministry previously that was serving abortion workers or the Abortion Survivors Network. They're the only organization that exclusively focuses on helping survivors of abortion. And so those affiliate organizations fill those gaps. But then we also have projects and our projects that we founded to um, meet needs that we saw were not being met. And some of them serve organizations and others of them serve women directly. And how many affiliates uh, does ProLove Ministries have now? I think right now we're at 16 I may be wrong. Yeah. And some of what you guys do is um, helping women in facing unexpected pregnancies, right? You have different ways that women who have financial needs or other health needs can have those met, right? Yes. And so our project Loveline is uh, really probably the premier project of Pro-Love Ministries. That's, that is how most people know about us is because of that project. And so um, if I could just speak about that for a moment and, t- and tell you all what it is. Yeah. So Loveline is a crisis text line for women who are pregnant unexpectedly and in crisis. And the hope is to help her by meeting her complex needs. And so these are women who have multiple complex needs, needs that they've not been able to get met at a pregnancy center or any other organization. Most of the women who come to us, a lot of them at this point now are being referred to us from pregnancy centers. So we supplement the work of pregnancy centers. We've recognized and Guttmacher has reported that 73% of women who seek an abortion seek it for a financial burden. And when she walks into a pregnancy center, that is actually a need that cannot be met at the center. And so they often have to refer her back out into the community to get that need met. And now they may have ministry partners that they partner with who are able to help. It becomes increasingly more difficult once she gets outside of the life-affirming pool. 
to um, continue to meet her needs with dignity. And so our hope really at Loveline is to be that supplemental help to fill the gaps, not to duplicate services, but to provide comprehensive case management and meet the needs that cannot get met elsewhere. All around the country right right now, parents are grappling with this formula shortage. Um, How has the formula shortage in the U.S. impacted the women you work with? And what are some of the ways that the pro-life movement is helping? Quite honestly, we've not encountered a lot of of issues. Um, We've had a few women who've reached out to us and said that, you know, they couldn't find formula for their babies. At this point, the majority of women that we're serving are actually pregnant. Some of them have already had their babies. And the ones that have a need, like one is in New York or Connecticut, which is uh, really close to New York. And she was having a hard time finding formula. We had another one in Mississippi and then another one in Alabama. And so we had formula. We actually have a transitional living home that we run here in Texas. And it's like a mile and a half from my house. And we had formula on our shelves. And so uh, just yesterday, I mailed out three boxes of formula to moms. Um, We've had formula donated to us that uh, is good until next year. And so because of that, we've been able to uh, meet that need because we already had some inventory. Oh, thanks be to God for that. Reading these reports about, you know, parents going to different states and driving to all of these different stores and uh, dealing with empty shelves. It's just shocking that something like this is is happening in America, I think speaks to a, a larger problem of just society not supporting moms and babies enough. I'm really not sure how much of it is truth. You know, just today, I went and picked up one of our residents from the home and took her to a job interview and to turn in her application for daycare. As we were talking, she said, you know, I was in Walmart yesterday and we're here right outside Houston, Texas. She said, I was in Walmart yesterday and the shelf was full of her daughter's formula, which was Similac, Pro Advanced, just regular Similac. And she said there was plenty there. So I'm not saying that it's not true, that there's not an issue in some places, but from what we've seen in our work, and we're, again, we're answering more than 30 calls a day um, of women in crisis. We've literally only had three or four who've had a need. It's interesting you say in Texas, the shelves are are stocked because I have a friend in Texas who also told me that the that she hadn't had any trouble with formula and that it was... Um, yeah. So I don't know, maybe Texas is better prepared or or something, but that's great that you've been able to help these women and um, and that there hasn't been as that the shortage hasn't impacted you guys as much. What are some of the needs of women that you've helped um, women meet when they have come to Loveline or Pro Love Ministries in crisis? I can give a great example of one who um, she's a resident in our transitional home. And when we met her, she was four months pregnant and she was living in a drug house. You would call it a trap house in a really small town in Texas. And her boyfriend was dealing drugs and using drugs. And she had been using drugs also, methamphetamine and marijuana. She was pregnant and she didn't want to be. And she had tried to self-abort. She tried to use pills. Then she tried to do a lot of drugs. 
Um, she even beat her stomach with um, bricks. And she was just trying to get the baby out because she didn't want to have the baby. This mom had served four years in prison previously. And she had also lost custody of her first child to CPS. You know, she really felt unqualified, unloved, unseen, unheard. She felt unworthy. And so all of those underlying unmet needs were really driving her decisions and um, the way she was feeling about herself at this point. When she reached out to us, she had had sort of a, an awakening. She felt her daughter move for the first time. And when that happened, it really changed her. She thought, man, I've done everything that I can to try to get rid of you. And you're still fighting. You know, I should fight for you too. And someone had shown her a video that we made. It was a one minute video on social media that had our text line. And she texted us on the hotline. And in that text message, she said that she was hungry. And that she, you know, was in a bad relationship and she was tired and she really needed help. And because she said she was hungry, the first thing we did was send her some food. We sent her two pizzas and some Sprite. And it got there before we ended our conversation. This mom had also been in foster care at one point. And so she just didn't trust anybody. And the fact that we did that so quickly, I know it seems simple, you know, but we heard her. And we heard that need and we met that need immediately. And it meant the world to her. And that began our relationship. Eventually, we moved her into our home and um, we've been caring for her since last summer. And her daughter is now, she'll be eight months old on June the 8th. And she's beautiful. And this mom now has, she's in GED classes. She's not quite finished yet. It's taken her a little while. And she has now has her driver's license. She never had a driver's license before. We got her into driver's education. And then we have also taken her. And now she has her driver's license. She has a job that she goes to. Um, her daughter, we just put in her application for daycare and paid for it today. And then next week, we've got a car that's been donated for her. And so she'll have her own car. So she's well on her way to self-sufficiency. She's in a recovery program at a local church here where my husband is a pastor. And she also is in therapy. We provide therapy at no cost with an EMDR trained or yeah, EMDR trained therapist. And so she receives trauma therapy. She also attended Embrace Grace and completed that. And she is also in financial coaching. So it seems like you provide a really holistic approach to helping women in crisis. We do a lot of assessments with moms. And I always tell our case managers, I think the greatest gift that we have is listening. If we listen long enough, we really hear the needs. And I think we have to, we have to serve in humility and not come with what we think the answers are, but really hear her and hear what her needs are. And when we begin to value what she values, you know, because our goal is to really individualize the care that we offer. We want it to be relational and not transactional. We want her to know that she's loved. And if we see her completely, then we believe she's going to know that and feel it. How did you get involved in the pro-life movement? I was not a Christian. 
for most of my life. And I was actually um, pro-choice and I had my own abortion experience. Um, I was not someone that would ever have been advocating for anybody or standing up, you know, for the for women's rights in this way or believing that, you know, women shouldn't be having abortions. After I had my own abortion, I dove deeper into drug addiction and alcoholism. The experience was very traumatic for me. I had an abortion in 2001 at West Alabama Reproductive Services, I think is the name of the clinic, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Dr. Payne, who was the doctor at the time, I think he's retired now, but he perforated my uterus in the procedure. And I bled out and I hemorrhaged and they tried to stop the bleeding for about 25 minutes and they couldn't. So they had to call an ambulance. And uh, they put me on a gurney in the back hallway in the dark with no lights on. And I had no idea what was about to happen. It felt like eternity that I was back there because I was alone. The ambulance showed up with no sirens, no lights to the back door. And they wheeled me out and took me to DCH Regional Hospital there in Tuscaloosa, where I stayed overnight and I recovered. And thankfully, I was able to be released the next afternoon and I recovered. But I stuffed that experience for about 10 years. And over the next year after the procedure, I attempted suicide. They prescribed Vicodin for me. So I got addicted to the opiates. Um, I was already using cocaine and alcohol. And so now I'm using meth and opiates on top of that. And my drug addiction just got worse. You know, I tell people all the time, you can't tell me that that abortion didn't impact my life negatively. I already had trauma in my life. And this abortion experience, this decision that I made to have an abortion, I believe was really in response to the trauma I already had in my life. I felt like I couldn't do it, like I had no choice. And every person that I asked up until that point told me that. They confirmed it. And the day I walked up the sidewalk, no one was outside. No one told me about a pregnancy center. I didn't know anything about the beautiful life-affirming resources that are available. I just didn't have that kind of support in my life. And there was no one advocating for me at the time. And so years later, in 2004, I entered into recovery and I got sober and I've been sober ever since. So since April the 26, 2004, but I didn't surrender my life to Christ at that time. Um, it was about five more years before I really had an awakening and I had an experience that radically changed me. And that was in 2009. And a couple, I started reading the word of God and I began to be convicted about certain issues. And one of them was the life issue. And so uh, I started researching and learning about the laws in America and what the truth was about abortion. I became appalled. You know, I was really disgusted by what I found out. And I'm someone who had worked in science my entire life. I was a laboratory technologist. So I understood human development. But you can know something and not really know it. You know, like I had learned it, but I didn't know it. Once I read it again, it was like it was, I don't know, maybe because my eyes were open. I was like, I can't believe that I've 
you know, why didn't I know this already? You know, it almost made me feel ignorant. I began following Abby Johnson and I started learning everything that I could. I followed some people I probably shouldn't have, <laughs> which I'll learn later, but I just really began kind of immersing myself in everything about the movement. And um, Abby's approach um, to me was more, my heart was kind of tethered to hers. You know, like I could see that the mercy that she had and the empathy and compassion she had for women and workers was really an approach that I appreciated. I began following her. I went to the Capitol in Texas in 2013 to uh, lobby for HB2, the new law in Texas that uh, is a big deal. This was the 20 week abortion ban. Yes. There were four parts to the bill. It was that RU486 would be administered by FDA regulations. There would be a 20-week ban on abortion. Doctors needed to have admitting privileges within 30 miles of the facility at a hospital within 30 miles. And then they want we wanted abortion facilities to be held to ambulatory surgical center regulations. And two parts of the bill got struck down, the ASC regulations and the 30-mile, the admitting privileges. But the RU486 and the 20-week ban, were, were they stood, they were upheld. So there was a win in a lot of ways. But that was when I really met her face-to-face. And it was through that meeting that I began serving her ministry um, at retreat. And then um, in 2015, I left my job and came on staff at the beginning of 2016. And I started working with Then There Were None as a client manager and prayer team coordinator. And then in 2019, she made me executive director of Prolive Ministries. My initial start was really on the sidewalk with Sidewalk Advocates for Life. And that was my heart. And I did that up until last year, actually. <laughs> but once I became executive director of Prolive Ministries, I had to shift a little bit. You know, we always have to kind of decide what we're going to prioritize and and what we're not. And so I had to let my sidewalk advocacy go so that I could fulfill my responsibilities. What an inspiring story. And I'm so sorry for the trauma that you went through. What is your hope for the pro-life movement if slash when Roe v. Wade um, is overturned this summer? We focused our efforts really on love and not the law. I think my hope is that women would be wrapped in love and resources and that no woman would go underserved or unserved. I, I, my hope is that we would build a culture that supports life, not just that talks about it. You know, I think if we look in the world that we live in today, there are so many ills that we need to heal. And um, this is the greatest injustice the greatest human rights issue that we face, but there are many, you know? And so while we're winning this battle, we've yet to win the war. We celebrate this victory, of course, but we move forward united and really focusing our efforts on serving women. You know, we've been reactive for far too long, and now we have the opportunity to be proactive. Exactly. We can cast the sort of the vision and, and some of these pro-life organizations like Loveline are are actively showing us what their vision is for what a pro-woman, pro-life society could be. So when, when Roe falls, 
I hope our and and even before then, I hope our listeners know they can send uh, people to Loveline for this really specialized help and crisis intervention that you guys provide. And also people can go to Prolove Ministries and, and find different resources and information. Is there anything else that you would like to add, Pamela? There's no one organization that's going to be able to do this alone. It has to be all of us working together. And just like the body of Christ has many parts and all of us working together creates it functioning properly, it's the same thing with the pro-life movement. Each of us has a part to play. Some are activists, some are advocates, some are educators, but every single one of us, every single organization comes together and we make this thing real and living. And, you know, at this point, what we're doing at Loveline seems to be revolutionary in a lot of ways. We want it to become ordinary and not be extraordinary. You know, our hope is that many of the pregnancy centers across this, the country would begin to adapt this case management model of care. And we've actually trained in 10 different states. We've done workshops to give over everything that we know and everything that we've learned in doing this to pregnancy centers in the hopes that they would begin to adapt their practices to serve in this way. So if there's anything that we can do to help pregnancy centers move in that direction, we're here for it. And I also want folks to know this isn't our organization, but her plan, which is run by SBA List, they're doing a great job of beginning to roll out sort of a case management help website that helps to um, guide centers in finding the proper resources for women in states. So I think we're getting ready. Uh, we're poised to really be able to fill all the gaps in the movement. And we should be excited about that. But we need to maintain this momentum and know that uh, we don't get to sit back and rest. You know, our work really is just beginning. And there's so much to do and and um, so many different ways to do it. So Pamela Whitehead, thank you so much for joining the Ladies of LifeSite podcast. This has been a very illuminating conversation and we are so excited about the pro-life work that you're doing and all of the women who you are helping. So thank you so much for all that you do. And thank you for speaking with, with me and everyone joining us um, by listening. Thank you, Claire. And roll tide. Roll tide. God bless. You too. Bye-bye.